Thank you, Anna. Uh, I'm just thinking about it as, as Anna was reading that. Um, we had a situation once, back in the day, before um, it was part of my DNA to be involved in uh, cross-denominational weddings or baptisms or those things that we now do in Fitzroy as really a matter of form. I uh, had left for Stantrum as assistant and one of the members there um, was getting married to a Catholic girl in the south of Armagh and wanted a Protestant um, contribution to the the wedding. So I uh, agreed that I would go and, uh, and just read the scriptures at this um, this wedding. So uh, South Armagh was interesting itself. When you're from Balamina, there's another terrain altogether. But we found the church, and I did my part, and uh, then we went off to the reception. Now, I'll tell you this, just in case you're thinking of getting married. We're not good at responding to wedding invitations, because we presume because I'm going to be there that you think I'm going to be there, do you know? So unless it's fish and beef and Janice isn't a fish fan and we have to answer that question, we, we might forget to answer, you know, we're coming. So I never sent back a, I'm coming because I was involved in a wedding before, so I didn't. So we got to the, <clears throat> the hotel, walked in and thought, now where are we sitting? Because that's always a big issue at a wedding. Where are you sitting? Who are you going to have to put up with for the whole evening? And... Um, Looked down all the charts, looked at every table, and our names weren't on the list. Janice says, why not? And I'm going, I don't know. Well, did you send back an RSVP? Well, I never do. Well, then that's probably why they didn't get an RSVP. And I'm thinking, yeah, it would be the Catholic priest marrying them, so they would assume he was there. But because I was reading, so we had to scarper out we got into the car in the car park and we got out of there because we didn't want to embarrass the couple when they arrived and they had no table for us to sit at and no meal for us. So I uh, felt bad for a while and we, I met the guy about, because we weren't the same church anymore, so I, di- I didn't see the guy for maybe another couple of years. And when we met the next time, I don't know where it was, but we had a brief chat and then he said to me, why did you not come to our reception? And I said, well, we did but our names weren't on the list. And he said, but you were the minister. You were at the top table. And I went, oh my goodness. Now, it's a funny story, although it's not funny for us. There's still trauma. I can feel it with Janice already, just as we think about it. Um, But it's what we're talking about here in Proverbs. It's about seating arrangements. It's part of what the culture of Jesus' day, as Anna read from the parable in Luke 14, and it's also what some of these parts of the Proverbs are talking about at this stage, the one that she read from uh, uh, Proverbs uh, 25. There's something about Jesus looking at the seating arrangements to teach us something about life. Proverbs. I want to have Proverbs sorted. I think of any Old Testament book, that's the one I would love to have sorted. I'd love to have it all read. I'd love to know what it all says. I'd love to know what it all means. I would love to use it in every day in my life. And yet, 
Though I've read it and though I've dabbled back into it and I've said I'm going to read it every day for the next year and I don't read it every day for the next year, I probably haven't got a handle on it the way I should have or have any of us. When I did my sabbatical at Regent College Vancouver, there was a day conference and in the morning Bruce Wolke uh, did Proverbs and in the afternoon Eugene Peterson um, did something as well. It was just an, an amazing day and I give up a penalty shootout in the FA Cup to go and hear Bruce Wolke and, uh, and Eugene Peterson. And Bruce Wolke has two books on Proverbs about this thick, two parts. And when he was talking about it that morning, it was like, Wow! And I remember sitting with my friend Martin Baxter and looking at him and saying, now you see, if I'd spent the time in Proverbs that I spent in you too, I could do this. And he said, well, Bruce Walkie hasn't written anything on theology and music, so you do your bit and he does his bit, and he made me feel a wee bit better. I'd love to have Proverbs sorted. And actually the lectionary that we follow, although we're going to dip in and out of it for the series I want to do starting next week, the lectionary has only about six short verses from Proverbs in its whole three-year cycle. And reading this week, an Old Testament theologian was saying that it wasn't really until this last 20th century that the books of wisdom in general, and Proverbs in particular, were taken seriously in the academic field. But we should pay a lot of attention to the Proverbs. And it seems to me in the overview that I've taken of it this week as I've looked into it and tried to uh, come to terms with it. By the way, I cannot wait for James McEwan, 29th of March, in How to Read the Bible series when he comes to uh, do Proverbs with us because he's a good Old Testament scholar and he'll give us some brilliant insights. But as I took it this week, it seems that the Proverbs are everyday things, learning from everyday things, learning everyday lessons from everyday things that happen to us. The one we probably all know the best. Chapter Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, you lazy bones. Consider its ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, it prepares its food in the summer and gathers its sustenance in harvest. Just by looking at an ant, tiny and all as it is, although can I say, for those who've been in Uganda, it's a whole different beast in Uganda you pay a whole lot more attention to it there than you do here. You see anthills of this size and maybe higher, and you see them crawling around and you're thinking, there could be damage done there. And I remember walking around the side of the the original Fields of Life farm and two of the alumni standing on my feet and telling me to get my shoes off because those ants that might not be good in your pants, as the rhyme says, were making their way from their feet up my ankle to my leg. So you do take more attention, maybe in Africa, but you, there's ants all around us. Do we take time in our lives to learn from the everyday things around us, everyday lessons in life? One that happened to us this week. You're just in there, you've stayed up maybe a wee bit late, maybe reading a bit of Proverbs or some other book that you've been reading. And you get up there and you're brushing your teeth when you hear Janice in the bedroom saying, Jed! And you're realizing Jed has just thrown up on our bed right as you're about to get into it for a good night's sleep. Now that sounds, no! The book of Proverbs would be saying, Steve, calm your anger and learn a lesson from life in your dog throwing up on your bed. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool 
repeats his folly. I'm in the bathroom repeating my folly, but not learning the lesson from everyday life. Proverbs. And I might be particularly like that <clears throat> this particular uh, summer because I've been reading a lot of the poet Mary Oliver. She's wonderful. If you haven't read any Mary Oliver, just go home and get Mary Oliver collected. You don't like poetry? You need to get Mary Oliver. You hate poetry? You need to get Mary Oliver because she is the poet that will get you into poetry. And the main thing that I think she teaches me in her poetry is that awareness of the everyday. One of just one or two lines. Sometimes I need only to stand wherever I am to be blessed. Sometimes I need only to stand wherever I am to be blessed. She has this great awareness of the ant and the dog thrown up. And she has a whole book actually on dogs, of poetry on dogs. Uh, but she has this everyday life awareness. The butterfly in the forest this summer in Bally Castle, that hundreds of butterflies. Uh, I saw them differently this year because I was reading Mary Oliver. Everyday lessons for everyday life. The Proverbs. So maybe some of these other Old Testament books are telling us <clears throat> what's the deal with evil and why do good people suffer and how does that happen to them? The Proverbs say to us, how do you deal with your money? How can you have a healthy marriage? How do you relate to your friends? What about work? What do you do there? It's about the minutiae of life from the lessons of life. And we come to this one today. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told to come up here than to put lower in the presence to be put lower in the presence of a noble. And in some ways, Janice and I could feel, well, we didn't put ourselves at the top table didn't even imagine we would be at the top table. So we didn't put ourselves at the bottom table. We scarpered. Um, but it's a lesson from the table rituals of the Old Testament days and that Jesus used in this parable to teach us something I think that's profound at the start of a new church year. The lesson is humility. And the gospel is a gospel of radical humility. The Pharisee and the publican, the one who put themselves forward and felt they were arrogant enough to be holy, and the one who was vulnerable and open and honest and confessional. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Jesus said more than once and told parables that meant that more than once. The posture of Isaiah in the temple, for I have seen God and who am I and I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Or of David, who was aware before God of his frailties and needed to confess. Our posture before God is crucial to not only the discipleship of following Jesus, but I think also in the healing of our broken souls. Radical humility. The posture that Jesus calls us to in what we read at the outset of the service. He who was God made himself nothing so that we who were nothing could become heirs of God. But because we've become heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus shouldn't make us feel arrogant or presumptuous or to be trying to get to the top table. We need to be aware of our preciousness. We need to be aware of being made in the image of God. 
We need to be aware that today, in front of me, in every face I see, is the most spectacular creation of God. And we need to be aware that you are the most spectacular creation of God because you are made in the image of God and because God left heaven to become obedient to death on a cross because he loved you. That's how precious you are. We don't want to lose sight of that. But what we don't want to do is to take that to become arrogant, self-righteous, those who think that we're deserving while others are not. Because Jesus' ministry to us was to wash the disciples' feet. That's what the Lord does. That's the message, the radical discipleship of the gospel. So I want to take us then (coughs) into something I learned over the summer that blended nicely, maybe in a contrived way, but I don't think so. You can judge that with this lectionary reading of today. I find that the summer for me, um, I've told you this before, but Whitney Wilkinson, who was one of our interns, the Reverend Whitney Wilkinson, who was one of our interns, told me not to take any theology with me on holidays and to ban theological books when you're on holidays, so I read novels. But I find that the novels probably teach me as much, if not more, than the theological books because I'm more relaxed, I'm not looking for sermon illustrations, I'm not looking for some theological thought, and yet I go into this novel and suddenly I'm going, whoa. So my book of the summer is a book called The Lightkeeper by a friend of mine called Cole Morton, who was at the Four Corners Festival just a couple of years ago. His last book was about, uh, this is his first novel actually, but he's had four books out, but they've been, the last book was about the boy who gave his heart away and the story of two families, one who donated their heart to uh, another boy who was, uh, who needed a heart and then the families coming together, etc. This is pure novel. And it's set um, where, where, where Cole's from in the, um, the Seven Sisters, Beachy Head, um, south, south of England. And what happens in the book, and I don't want to tell you too much, but I probably will blow it for you. Um, <clears throat> so spoiler alert, spoiler alert. What happens in the book is that these two lost souls find themselves together um, on Beachy Head. And it seems in the book that if you're on Beachy Head and you're on your own, everybody assumes you're going to jump. So I wouldn't go there for a a lonely walk or a quiet reflection because somebody's likely to rugby tackle you and take you to some trauma counselling and lead to some psychological help from then on. It seems that if you're on that uh, edge of uh, the south of England, people think it's going to be suicide. So, So this girl has gone to the south of England just to get away for some solitude. And she meets, but she's in a very dark time of her soul because she's going through um, one that many of us here know and that Cole knows in a very personal way. They're trying to have a baby and they can't have a baby. And he just describes that. I think it should be taught at Union College in the most incredible way that you would teach what that's like to go through that. Sarah, who's going through that, meets um, uh, the keeper, the light keeper, who's trying to renovate this lighthouse. He's not a lighthouse keeper. The lighthouse is not, no, no longer functioning, but he's, him and his wife came to set this up as their dream place, and his wife dies reasonably young. So he's gone through the trauma and grief of that. And as a result of what happens in the story, they find themselves uh, together talking. And <clears throat> the amazing thing in the book that I discovered as I followed it through was that they both, in some ways, save each other, rescue each other, find the light 
out of their darkness with each other and their vulnerability with each other. They end up sharing the raw truth of their trauma to each other. Not planned, not scheduled, it just happens. And that as both of them share their darkness, they lead each other into light. The experts and the professionals in this book get it way wrong. The ones who are vulnerable and are honest and humble before each other to be vulnerable get the healing. And it was a lesson to me, a lesson that I think I know, but I haven't seen enough of in my own life. And I watch it in the life of a congregation. Vulnerability is an incredibly courageous thing, as Cole describes very well. Some of us are in situations where if we don't become vulnerable about it, it's going to physically kill us if we don't tell the doctor. But other of us are psychologically or spiritually in places where if we're not vulnerable about it, if we're not honest about it, if we don't expose it to other people or another person, then it could kill us. But the truth of our vulnerability and humility might just be that which sets us free. And as we start a year in Fitzroy, it would be one of the many things that I would long for, that we would become a congregation that would be a humble congregation, that we wouldn't come in here on a Sunday morning and say, we've got Jesus, we've got it all together. What's that bit in Adrian Plass for those of us old enough, where the, you know, the guy comes into church and, and uh, because he's in church, he starts to pour out all his sins to the woman next to him in the pew and she just can't deal with it and uh, she runs away or whatever else. Or my friend Peter Case, the singer who was an alcoholic and came to faith and he said it took four years before God could make him clean again. But he said to my friend, a pastor in England, or actually who then went on to head up a Bible college, he said to him, he said, Rob, he said, why is it when I go into Alcoholics Anonymous and say who here's an alcoholic, everybody puts their hand up. But when I go into church and say who here's a sinner, not one person puts their hand up. Because we're not vulnerable people. I don't think we've been trained or taught humility or vulnerability. I think in our society, many people would see us as arrogant. Many people would call us hypocrites or self-righteous. We're actually the last person on earth to be self-righteous are the people sitting in these pews today because what we're doing is we're saying, I am a sinner. I can't do it myself. I need grace. I need help. I need the Holy Spirit. But we're not good at that posture. It's in our theology maybe, but it's not in the practical way that we live with one another. Vulnerability and humility are not only the ways that Jesus teaches us to live, They are the answer and the doorway to our healing, I believe. Not only personally, but societal. Matthew prayed for Stormont. What have we got in Stormont? Have we a humble vulnerability? Or have we an arrogant, almost self-righteousness or the political equivalent? What would it be like in Stormont? If we were vulnerable, 
particularly can I say, forgive me, but it's our people, particularly can I say to us, that unionist British population who can throw out all kinds of accusations at the Republican community but seem to miss 800 years of absolutely violent terror for us to own the beautiful, lush fields of the the County Antrim Plateau while we pushed all the Catholics onto the barren mountains and glens. What if we confessed it? What if we were vulnerable and said, Cromwell? What if we were vulnerable and said, collusion? What if we were vulnerable and said, we had paramilitaries too? What if we were vulnerable and said, we didn't have one man, one woman, one vote until the 60s? What if we were vulnerable and confessional? What would happen if both sides did that? Because it's not only Jesus' model for how to live. It's Jesus' secret to success. And don't trust me. Trust a recent survey that looked at 250 of the most successful people in the UK. And the most, the the trait that was most in the answers that come back or the surveys, the one trait that the most of them had overall was vulnerability. The 250 most successful people in the UK Every one of them was strong in their vulnerability. I don't think society likes vulnerability. I don't think society celebrates humility. I think Jesus came with a radical humility and a radical message that said, don't put yourself forward. Put yourself lower. Be honest. Be truthful. Be who you are. Be vulnerable. Be honest. Because salvation comes to those who know they need a savior. Salvation comes to those who know, I'm a sinner, I need grace. I'm a sinner, I need somebody to stand in. It all comes at the heart of our theology from confession, humility, and vulnerability. But it might not be the posture that we live by. Let's pray together. Lord, in his prayer in chapter 1, Nehemiah prayed, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Lord, humility, vulnerability, and confession are the heart of the story of salvation from Genesis chapter 3 right through to the end of Revelation. Modeled to us in a God who humbled himself, and became obedient to death, and who served those that he was at enmity with. Lord, may our humility lead to a vulnerability and an honesty and an openness and a truthfulness that might set us all free in our individual souls, in our community living, to the wider society that we live in, and beyond that. Show us your radical humility, that it's not only a way you want us to live, but it's the key to our healing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.